all aware that every religion has its symbols that illustrate the significant feature or central truth of that particular religion. Think about Taoism, it's the yin and the yang. Islam, the star and the crescent. For Buddhism, it's the Buddha. For Judaism, the star of David. And for Christianity, it's the cross, an ancient form of execution that one Roman poet called, quote, a cruel and disgusting penalty. And another said that it's a place to feed the crows. There's a reason that the cross has historically been the symbol of Christianity. Our sermon text teaches us that the work of Jesus Christ, the work that he accomplished on the cross, is the ultimate basis upon which all of Christianity rests. I wonder if the cross is the ultimate basis upon which your life rests. My prayer is that your life will be built on, shaped by, and rest in all that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Please take your copy of God's Word, turn to Titus chapter 2 that we have already read this morning. Titus chapter 2, our sermon text is verse 14. One very significant verse in Titus chapter 2 that is packed full of meaning. And this morning, we want to unpack this verse so that we can see what verse 13 says is, quote, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is described in verse 14. I would like for you to read Titus 2.14 with me out loud. Speaking of Jesus, verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, that's God's word. So the position of this verse in chapter 2 teaches us something very important about its significance. It's like the base of a pyramid. Everything in chapter 2 ultimately rests on verse 14. Just like a skyscraper on bedrock, all of the truths of chapter 2 rest on this final description of the person and work of Jesus Christ in verse 14. So let's go back and remember, for those of you who have been with us during our study of Titus the past number of weeks, let's remember the substance of chapter 2. Look at the chapter with me there in your Bible. Verse 1 and verse 15, Paul begins and, and ends by exhorting Titus to teach, quote, sound doctrine with confidence and authority in order to help the immature, 
dysfunctional, and vulnerable church on the island of Crete. In verse 2 through 10 of chapter 2, Paul gives instructions for how every member of the church, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus himself, and bond servants, how Christians are to live. Each member of the church is to live out the faith with godliness and good works. Then, verse 11 through 13, Paul explains why. After explaining how, verse 11 through 13, Paul explains why Christians are to live this way. Look there in verse 11. Because of two historical, earth-defining Appearances of Jesus Christ. Appearance number one, the past appearance of God's grace in Christ. That's verse 11 and 12. And then appearance number two, verse 13, the future appearance of God's glory in Christ. Christians are to live with godliness in between the two appearings of Jesus. The appearance of God's grace and the appearance of God's glory. We live in between the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. And now verse 14 explains what Jesus did that makes all this possible. Verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 14 is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything in Titus chapter 2 rests ultimately on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in verse 14. That means that the cross is the sound and authoritative doctrine that the church needs, verse one. And 15. That means in verse 2 through 10 that the cross is the reason Christians are to live godly lives. Every one of us. That means in verse 11 and 12 that the cross is the essence of God's grace that appeared bringing salvation. That means in verse 13 that the cross is the guarantee that God's glory will appear in the future. And that means at the end of verse 13 that the cross is the very reason that Jesus is, quote, our great God and Savior. The cross is the glory of Christ. It defines Christianity from beginning to end. The past grace that brings salvation, the present godliness that demonstrates salvation, and the future glory that culminates salvation. Friends, if your Christian life does not center on, flow from, and rest in the cross of Christ, it's not Christianity. It's some other religion. Because Christianity centers on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question that we're going to answer this morning from verse 14 is this. 
What did Jesus do? I'll take that one step further. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross that has become the ultimate bedrock for our faith? Look at verse 14. Grammatically, technically, you will see that Jesus has done one work for two purposes that has one result. One work for two purposes that has one result. Do you see that? Verse 14. One work. Jesus gave himself for us. Two purposes. To redeem us from all un- from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And then one response to the cross. This people are zealous for good works. Friends, what we have in this one verse are four glorious doctrines of the cross that form the ultimate basis for living out the faith. So let's unpack these four glorious doctrines one at a time. Number one, what we see here in verse 14, first of all, is substitutionary atonement. If you're taking notes, number one is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. On the cross, Jesus sacrificed himself, keywords for us. Do you see that at the beginning of verse 14? Who gave himself, that's sacrifice, for us. That's substitution. Substitutionary sacrifice to make atonement for sin. The problem here is that the fact that Jesus gave himself for us means that he took our place as a substitute, which presupposes that we are in a terrible situation. We are condemned to death because of our sin. Our sin brings with it the penalty of death, and it has from the very first sin in the garden. And every son of Adam, daughter of Eve, has been born a sinner, separated from God, condemned to death. We do not become sinners when we sin for the first time. We're born sinners because our original mother and father, Adam and Eve, are sinners. And when two sinners get together, you know what they produce? Another sinner. And so we are born originally cast out of the garden, separated from God, under the penalty of death and condemnation. Here's the good news. God does not leave us that way. The Lord Jesus Christ, according to verse 14, gave himself for us. Voluntary, substitutionary sacrifice of himself in our place. 
This is a picture of substitutionary atonement. The wrath of God will be poured out on sin. So either we can receive the wrath of God against our sin, or God has already poured his wrath out on a, what's the key word? Substitute. And so we have the Old Testament picture where God showed this to his people a thousand times, a thousand times a thousand. Every day, every week, every month, every year, at every, every holiday, there were substitutionary sacrifices going on in the temple. That's what all of this bloody religion is about. God saying that the guilty who deserve death can be covered by the innocent dying in their place. So God set up the sacrificial system where they would bring an innocent, pure lamb. They would sacrifice the lamb, killing the innocent. What's the key word? In the place of the guilty sinner. And the blood of the innocent would make atonement, would bring satisfaction for the wrath of God against sin. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Christ is no ordinary lamb. Christ is better than every bull and goat that we see in the Old Testament. Here's the gospel according to Hebrews chapter 9. Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, not to offer himself repeatedly, like the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of bulls and goats. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it, as it is appointed for man, me and you, wants to die, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Substitutionary atonement, Christ gave himself for us. On the Christ, Jesus sacrificed himself. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Peter said, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. So that he might bring us to God. Substitutionary atonement, friends. The result is that we're no longer condemned. We are now righteous before God. Our sins are forgiven. 
We're, we're no longer sinners. We're saints. Not because of anything that we've done, but by grace, through faith in the finished work of Jesus more than 2,000 years ago on his cross. Jesus did not just make salvation available. He saved all of God's people. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, Romans chapter 8, can you say it with me? Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thomas Brooks said it like this, Christ has crossed out the black lines of our sin with the red lines of his blood. Friends, substitutionary atonement is the glory of cross uh, of Christ through his cross and it's one of the four foundational truths upon which all of Christianity rests. Number 2. Look at verse 14. Jesus who gave himself for us, what's the next phrase? To redeem us from all lawlessness to redeem us from all lawlessness here we have the doctrine of redemption jesus christ on the cross rescues us from sin redemption just just this word redeem it's not just a religious word the the word redeem means to buy back or to buy out of so redemption presupposes that we're in a terrible situation that we need to be bought out of. Redemption tells us that we have a debt that we can't pay. Somebody else has to pay it. Redemption tells us that we're in bondage, enslaved, and and we are helpless to free ourselves. But here's the good news. Jesus gave himself For the purpose of what? To redeem us. To buy us out. To set us free by paying the ransom price. Just like if a a person was a prisoner of war or a slave, they could be bought out of slavery. Jesus paid the price. What was the price? Silver and gold? No, no. It was the precious blood of the Son of God, the righteous for the unrighteous. It cost Jesus his life. And he was willing to sacrifice it for you, for me, for us. Specifically, he redeems us, rescues us from what? All lawlessness. The word lawlessness is living as if there's no law. Specifically, living against God's law. As if God doesn't have a say-so in your life. So it's a life controlled by me. A life controlled by my inner self. My expressive individualism. Come back next week. Jesus paid the price to save us, to rescue us from our expressive individualism, from our way, our wisdom. 
Because he knows that our way, our wisdom always leads one place. Where is it? Death and destruction. But only God's ways and God's wisdom and God's word leads to life. So God sent his son, Jesus. And when Jesus came here, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, here's what he said. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, he delivered us, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, the cross of Jesus rescues us from sin and there's nothing else that can, nothing. So the result of redemption is that we're free. We are free now from the bondage of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we become slaves to God and his righteousness, which leads to life and peace. I will happily be the slave to God. Would you not? Here's what Romans 6 says. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves to righteousness. And righteousness is the way it ought to be. The way we all were made to live. Substitutionary atonement. Redemption. Number three. Read verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And what is the second purpose for which Jesus gave himself? To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now, do you understand why there was no way that I could preach this verse with last week's text? This is a gold mine. It's the ultimate basis upon which everything above it sits. And it's the four glorious doctrines of the gospel that come out of the cross, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. This third doctrine is the doctrine of purification. Purification. If you need to be pure, uh, purified, what does that presuppose about you? That you're dirty. That you're defiled morally. Purification presupposes that we are impure. We are unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. How does that sit well with your self-esteem? From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were innocent, they walked with God every day. They enjoyed the peace of God and conversed with him. But as soon as they sinned, there was immediate separation. Immediate 
Are you ready for this? Our loving and gracious God, as soon as there was sin, banished them from his presence. You know why? Because our loving and gracious God is also holy and just. And you ought to be glad he is. Because that's what keeps the universe together. God banished mankind from his presence because of our sin. But God was not willing to leave us outside the garden in the wilderness of sin under the curse of death. So God sent his son to purify the dirty, defiled, impure humans. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that flowed from the cross. The blood of Jesus didn't come from his holy life. The blood of Jesus that cleanses sin didn't come from his miraculous works. The blood of Jesus did not come from his resurrection. How glorious or ascension or even his intercession. There had to be the blood of Jesus from the cross. So that you and I, impure, defiled human beings, sinners, so sinful that we are depraved and can't do a thing about it, could be purified. To purify means to make something pure, to wash it and make it clean. Here's the way John described it. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And God said there would come a day in the new covenant, in Ezekiel chapter 37, when he was describing how he was going to fulfill everything, his covenant, his plan with his people. God said this in Ezekiel 37, 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Do you see what the result is of Jesus purifying his people? Look at the words closely. This is beautiful. The grammar here is phenomenal. Look at it. To purify for himself. Jesus had a great desire here. He wanted a people. He wanted the church for himself. He wants a people for what? His own possession. So he sacrificed himself, shed the blood to purify a people so that out of all of Adam's race, there would be a people that would no longer be in Adam, but would now be in Christ because they've been made pure by the blood of the lamb. God said this was going to happen. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, the Lord declared, you are a people for my treasured possession. 
He treasures the church so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son. The Lord Jesus Christ treasured the church so much that he was willing to sacrifice his life. Stop. Who are you willing to sacrifice your son for? David? Rusty? Josh? Who will you sacrifice your son for? I can tell you, I don't even think there's a list, let alone it being a very short list. But God treasured the church and sacrificed his son for us. All of those who will be atoned for, who will be redeemed, who will be purified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by God's grace, our response of faith, both of them a gift from God through the work of redemption of the whole, uh, regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Ah, friends, what a glorious truth. This, This concept of purifying for himself, for himself, a people for his own possession, get by Jesus owning us. It's okay if the great king of the universe owns me. How about you? Okay, if the glorious, holy God owns me, I'm okay with that. Don't think humans owning other humans. Think God buying you back out of sin and death. I'm okay with that. But you want to put it in a love language? Look at Ephesians chapter 5 just for a minute. Ephesians chapter 5 puts it into the language of marriage. Jesus married his church. He's the husband. We are the bride, not just our church. Come on, widen your perspective. The church of all time, of all places, the the brothers and sisters of 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, the brothers and sisters who right now are under persecution in China, the brothers and sisters right now under Sipo and Busi in South Africa, the brothers and sisters across the street at our our friends, the Presbyterians, or our friends, the, the... Brethren and Bible churches. The church is the bride of Christ. And Jesus did everything necessary to purify her. If you want your eyes to be open to our situation, go read Ezekiel chapter 16 this afternoon. And you will see the way God sees us. It's amazing. Ezekiel chapter 16. But for now, look at Ephesians chapter 5 and the language of marriage. Here's what marriage is about. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, his wife. So what did he do? He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27, so that... He might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. That's beautiful. Jesus 
cleanses us, purifies us, so that he can present us to himself as a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. Number four. Four glorious doctrines that form the ultimate basis for all of Christianity. We saw substitutionary atonement. We saw redemption. We've seen purification. And now, at last, in verse 14, we see the response, the result of this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A people who are zealous for good works. That's the result of the gospel. That's the response to the gospel. On the cross, Jesus makes us zealous for good works. But can I stop and go back and say there's something that has to happen to us before we can ever be zealous for good works? We need to be fit for good works. F I T, fit for good works. Because right now, as defiled, enslaved, condemned people, our good works aren't good. They're like filthy rags in the eyes of God. This is what Paul was explaining to Titus about the false teachers. Look at Titus chapter 1, the chapter right before where we're studying now. See, the problem is because of our impurity, we are unfit for good works. Look at chapter 1, and you'll see in verse 10 that he's talking about false teachers of the circumcision party. Look at verse 14 who devoted themselves to keeping religious commandments in order to be pure before God. But look at what Paul says about them in verse 15. Speaking of these religious leaders who are keeping the Old Testament law because they want to present themselves to God pure. So in other words, they're doing good works so that they can be seen by God as righteous and pure people. Doesn't that sound like about every religious person you know? I'm doing good. So that God will give me favor. Here's what God says about that. Verse 15. To the pure. All things are pure. But. To the defiled and unbelieving. Nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. When God looks at religious people who are trying to keep all of his rules in order to present themselves righteous and pure before him, God says they are, what are the words, defiled, unbelieving, who profess to know God, but deny them by their works. And then that last sentence is just, it slays us. Detestable, disobedient, and then unfit for any good work. We don't qualify 
for good works. Why? Because we're impure. We're defiled. So the solution, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross purifies us. And when it makes us pure, guess what it puts us in the position to do? We are now fit. We're now qualified to do good works. Here's how Hebrews chapter 9, we've already referenced this chapter earlier, but listen to this. Listen to the implications of the work of Jesus on the cross. This is fantastic. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's the blood of Christ that purifies us from dead works. What are dead works? Not just sin. All good works done in order to earn God's favor. Dead works. Useless, void, worthless. Dead. But the blood of Christ makes us pure from those dead works. And then that last phrase, to serve the living God. So Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us, rescue us from sin, to purify us from all lawlessness, to make us his own people, made us fit for good works. And then that very cross that defines good works calls us to be zealous for good works. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word zealous? You think of passion, enthusiasm. What are you passionate about? Your kids, golf, football, the Nats? Poor you if you're passionate about the Nationals right now. Worst team in baseball, and I love them. What are you passionate about? What are you zealous for? Well, when we think of a zealot, we think usually of some extreme religious or political party that opposes, and usually with violence, right? The zealots of Christ are passionate about good works. So what are good works? So far in the book of Titus, We can only define good works one way. And it's not baking cookies for your neighbor. It's a nice thing to do. But that's not what Paul is emphasizing here. He just said in chapter 1 that the false teachers were unfit for good works. Do you think he was saying they're unfit to take cookies to their neighbor or to to mow their neighbor's lawn? No. He said they were unfit to live a righteous and godly life because everything they do is fraught through and through with their impurity and depravity. Good works is the godliness that we live. Good works is everything that came before, verse 14. In chapter 2, verse 10 uh, through 10, and then specifically summarized in 11 and 12. Good works is renouncing ungodliness, verse 12 and worldly passions, and living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age in order to show the 
gospel's power to turn Cretans into Christians and in order to adorn the gospel with your good and godly life. Friends, the message of the cross is this. We are condemned, enslaved, defiled, and unfit for God. But the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is that his death and resurrection has accomplished everything necessary to make us righteous, to rescue us from sin, to purify us so that we can be the people of Jesus, fit and zealous for good works. The message of the cross is offensive to those who do not see their need for a Savior. But it is glorious to everyone who does. Can you see how the cross is the center point? The ultimate basis for the past grace of God in Christ, the present godliness in Christ, and the future glory of Christ. So I'll ask again, is your life built on shaped by and resting in all that Jesus accomplished on the cross? Or are you running around trying to do all you can to earn God's favor? Listen, friends, if your life is not built on the cross, then why don't you see me afterwards? Let's schedule a time this week that we can sit down and just talk. We'll open the Bible and we'll explore the gospel. I would love to do that with you in a, in a time when we can have good, healthy discussion back and forth about this. This is really important. But if, if your life is centered on, shaped by, resting in the cross, then Jesus instituted a supper so that we can celebrate what he accomplished for us on the cross. 